Damn, it's got a little like it's got sliders. Yeah, so I want you to keep talking right now. I'm just gonna keep talking right now. I'm still talking right now. Hey, I'm I'm talking over here. Oh, Jordan, I I developed a character that I want to introduce to you right now. Hey, uh, who's got two thumbs? This is this part, guy. This is part of the podcast. Yeah. Hey, hey, check it out. Who's got two thumbs in here? It's this it's guy. It's this guy. Hey, I'm, I'm Tommy Two Thumbs. <laughs> it's Tommy Two Thumbs. Two Thumbs. <laughs> what's, what's the matter? Got, got your thumb? <laughs> got your thumb? <laughs> oh my God. Hey, it's me. It's so bad. It's good. I got two thumbs over here. What do you got over here? Two thumbs? Yeah, I'm. Um, my name is Tommy. I'm from... All right. Does that sound good to you? Let's see what's happening over here. everybody welcome welcome to how i hear it a podcast where two nerds talk about the intersection between culture and music in a way that we think is funny hope you I do think too. it's funny we ho- really hope you do i'm having a ball it's a blast uh we've got a new recording setup today uh less wires more chains uh let more battery better Just sound one laptop now Ideally, it sounds we were better. Using eight desktops <laughs> string together before. Um, today, we're gonna actually sort of re-record an episode that was unfortunately lost. That is, that did happen when a computer was unfortunately stolen a few months ago. Um, but we're gonna do some different stuff. I think we figured out sort of a better format. Yeah. Um, and we hope you'll enjoy it. But first things first. Welcome to how I hear it. So the first section of our our show is one of my favorites. Second recurring time we're going to do it. Max's picks. Max's music facts. That's right. False or fact? Max's facts. Fact. Max is mad. That's true. So here's the game here is I present the headlines to three separate music related news stories. And it's up to Max to determine which ones are real. And which ones I'm fibbing about. I was born to do this. One of them is not real. I, okay. I guess that's the other part of the game. They're not all nonsense. The two of them are real. One of them uh, is not real. And last time I got a sneak peek preview, so I had a little bit of extra help. Uh-huh. This time, I'm going raw. It's going to be really hard. <laughs> You're not even going to know who some of these people are. Well, that's not fair. That's not true either. Okay. Yeah. You Hopefully, you'll know. We'll find out. Uh, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Megan the Stallion. Yes. You're aware. The with two E's. The with two E's. That's correct. Thank you. Uh, is writing a horror movie and has said that one of her inspirations is Human Centipede. Okay. Which is a lot of fun and really goes deep into this, I think, new world of pop music or hip hop where <laughs> someone can, like a woman artist saying that 20 years ago. Right. People would have been like, that's fucking gross i thought you're gonna say we're about to and open a new chapter weirdo. i thought you're gonna say we're about to open a new chapter for human centipedes yeah that too right yeah yeah now <laughs> this is a real big win for human centipedes in the hip-hop industry yeah horror rap 
horror. I mean, Grave Diggers. It has been a thing for yeah, a while. But Grave, Grave Diggers was a good group. I don't know that Megan B. I'm not that familiar with uh, her music, but. Yeah, maybe it'll be like somehow like, yeah, blend of horror and hot girl summer. Mm. Which is, I think, what we can look forward to. Okay, so that's one. One for a while. Here's another one. Okay. Kanye West. Yes. You're aware of this person? Yes. Uh, Jesus is King. It's just late, been released. Have you listened to record. it? I haven't listened to it yet. I yeah, I listened to it a little bit. Okay, I've heard people like it. Yeah, um, it's being bought. Physical copies are being bought in CDs by um, conservatives in the South, and they're donating them to Planned Parenthood facilities. Okay, is that crazy or weird? It's I mean, it's very religious. I love it. That you love this <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah, I love this concept. Yeah, I don't know what his message is to Planned Parenthood. Like I, I listen to. The, two or three songs mm-hmm. so i don't know where the message gets into the the nitty-gritty i mean here's, here's apparently my conservatives are feeling good about it here's what i feel in my gut just based off of that one thing is put like, your gut onto the onto the airwaves my guts on the waves um and what they tell me is that i just really wish that the left was had the kind of organization that the right clearly has. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> to be able is, to just. Isn't that crazy? To be able to just come up with like the most crackpot plan of sending Planned There's Parenthood. So much, so much debate and argument about doing something like this if, on the left. It would we, not happen. No, if, if we. If Couldn't we could, happen. Could we just give people food? No. That's yeah. so hard. <laughs> <laughs> people need medicine. Well, do they? Okay. I think part of it might be. All the, I'm guessing all the people who are sending in those CDs and going to Walmart to buy them in the first place are all retirees. Sure, that's true. They have much extra time on their hands. Uh, you ready for the third story? Yes. The third story, um, John Legend, you're aware of this person? Yes. Uh, is rewriting the problematic lyrics to Baby, It's Cold Outside. I'm, I assume for a, a release. I actually didn't read the whole article. I assume it's for an upcoming, like a Christmas album or something like that. Oh which seems like a thing John God. Legend does a lot of. And one of these isn't real? <laughs> one of these is not real. Because all of those are so normal and plausible that I can't imagine. No. Yeah. Um, okay. Megan the Stallion's making a horror movie. Old folks sending Jesus' King to Planned Parenthood. Or. What was the last one again? John Legend. John Legend is, is rewriting. rewriting the problematic lyrics to "Baby, It's Cold Outside," which is a you know it is a Christmas song that is creepy as fuck. Right, but then what will Zoe Deschanel sing in her latest upcoming holiday release, which I'm she's, sure is on the way? She's got plenty of songs written between 1910 and 1940, <laughs> yeah, yeah. all of which are problematic, but nowhere near catalog. as problematic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Dang. I don't think Megan the Stallion is directing a horror movie. That's what I'm yeah. I'm calling that right now. Wrong. Damn it. God <laughs> damn it. Uh writing a horror movie. Okay. But right. that is that's a real thing that's Shit. happening. Uh Kanye West is conservatives are not sending. Oh, movies. you bastard. As far as I know. That's the one that's, that's not the one a that headline I, that I saw. That's the I mean, one that I, I guess, wanted to be true the yeah, most. I it, guess it could be. It possible, does make the least but, sense. But I really wanted that. Okay, and yet that's what I expect. That's the kind of crock, crackpot shit that I expect from from all of the people who watch involved. Fox News. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint. Well, you know, I'm just really glad that John Legend is doing this really important work. 
<laughs> Someone's on it. I mean, I don't want my kids to live in a world where John Legend hasn't rewritten the problematic that, parts yeah. of <laughs> Baby It's Cold Outside. <laughs> oh my god. At least someone has been thinking about it. I think everybody else was ready to just not have that song around anymore. I guess people have listened to it still though, right? Like Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe we should just make holiday music punishable by death. That means just like kind of handle that. People would be in support. Yeah, or dead. Hmm. All right. Well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you're uh, o for two <laughs> on Mad Max's music facts. That's why I'm mad. Yeah. Now, now it's mad. <laughs> yeah. Now it's disappointed, Max. Now it's personal. Yeah. Uh, but. We still have the rest of an episode. Do you want to give a little synopsis of what we're going to talk about? Sure. Um, I don't know how much we've actually, I don't know, we haven't actually talked about exactly what our game we'll plan is. We'll talk about what you want to talk about. That's like, right. Give us a little, okay. give us a taste. So when I sat down yesterday and just started to write about what I wanted to talk about today, I just kind of went from from point to point. But the first thing I started with was like kind of a brief history of songwriting. Mm -hmm. And like, because one one thing that, okay, the topic of this this episode will be covers, cover music, cover songs. Um, And for me, that brings up questions about like authorship and the business aspect of of music, which are always there. But um, I think it just kind of highlights it because for... I don't know. I didn't actually look into this, but the concept of the cover song is fairly recent, I think. Mm-hmm. For a long time, a lot of musicians didn't perform their own music. They performed like standards. or Right. Like you know, there were music was a shared uh, history or right. a shared experience that we had as a society or as a culture. Right. That you everyone knew that the current songs of the day, I mean, like the symphonies that uh, Mozart or like Renaissance music, that was... It was also, I mean, I guess a little bit more privileged. Like, if you were going to the opera, you were probably someone of some substance. Right. But at the same time, there are, like, minstrels or people who would travel and make music. Uh, And it's always been a shared cultural phenomenon. Right. Whereas today, uh, consumerist identity sort of requires that everyone has a specific thing. Like, I'm into this type. I'm into this type. Like. Right, and like people who used to write operas sometimes didn't even get their name put on the little libretto. It like wasn't mm-hmm. that 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 wasn't that concept of the artistic genius separate from society, and that kind of became well. I don't know if we want to get into it now, but that kind of was introduced with people like Beethoven and these people. So anyway, I mean, that's yeah. one of the things that I was talking about. Or so that's one of the thing, yeah, is kind of a history of that. Um, and let me just flip through my notes real quick. But, cool. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Well, and then I, part of what I want to talk about is a, a song called Changes that mm. appears on Black Sabbath's Volume 4. Um, and just the different hands that that song has been in over the course of its life. Right. I mean, it's still going today. It was written decades ago. And right, it's still right. Going. But just the interesting thing about that is that one song can change hands. And by changing hands or by changing the context in which it's presented change its meaning or does it Mm -hmm. or i mean who what are we getting out of it and what was the artist trying to say and where does that sort of meet up right and i one of my favorite musicians of all time is nina simone and she kind of made a career at a moment in the 60s when like being a singer songwriter 
became increasingly important or being in a rock band and like playing your own material became increasingly important. Mm -hmm. She is probably still to this day best known for her versions of other people's songs. Um, kind of in a, in a way that's closer to like jazz or like, like older models for being a performer. Um, but the way that she makes them completely her own means that a lot of those songs have become the definitive versions of those songs. So I think she's a really interesting example also because of just the, the course of her life. Um, and another example that I had, that I had talked about in relation to this question is uh, Weird Al because he's someone who, I mean, all his songs are parodies. Like his specialty is, is parodies of songs and, and satire and taking people's songs and then twisting them. Um, and I think in both cases, in, in the case of Weird Al's parodies and in any cover, what you're playing with as an artist or what you're looking for as a listener is a kind of subversion of your expectations. Because whether or not, you know, like, yeah, that, that these songs that we are familiar, they work because we're familiar with them. Right. We know what they were. I mean, well, they work on multiple levels because for me, I listened to a lot of Weird Al songs before I heard the original. Mm-hmm. But in any case... Um, it is playing with your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think, I mean, something I ended up writing about, which I ended up feeling like was not that productive, maybe we'll get into it, is like what for you makes a good cover or a bad cover. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, that that's going to be as thorny or as like impossible to answer as what makes a good song or a bad song. It's, it has a lot of elements that are subjective, of course, but I think there are some things we probably could say about that. Yeah, that are definitive. Yeah. Cool. Do you want to take a... A little break, do a bump, and then uh, we'll come back on the other side. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back to How I Hear It. Welcome. Here we are. Um, so, like like we said, we're going to start with a little conversation about the kind of history of authorship in, in songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially how, as it relates to the business of making music. Because, you know, as long as capitalism has been the kind of name of the game economically for several hundred years... Um, Music is, is a commodity. It's a thing that we buy and sell. Right. And that you and me, Jordan, and, and people our age have interacted with music as listeners, primarily as, as consumers. Yeah, as someone who's who's collecting a consumer product uh, right. that helps to establish identity or, you know, right. exactly. sold as a product. Yeah, and like if we're not act- actively creating our own music, for the most part, we're just interacting with other people's products, Right. So that's just, that's just the fact um, yeah. of the matter. But, I mean, so before capitalism, it was kind of a feudal system where literally musicians had a, a direct relationship with their lords, with their patron, who would give them money to, like, write them songs, right? And then it was with, like, the idea of the individual artist who's separate and above society didn't really come into existence until there were individual musicians who came to be, res- like, composers who came to be respected like uh, like Beethoven, like Mozart. Wait, shoot. I think it's Beethoven. Okay, I don't know if they're from the same era. I don't, I mean, yeah. This might have to be cut. But the, but someone like Franz Liszt, 
This is part of uh, our gaps in knowledge, but yes. also that's it's just so much. To well, there's know a lot about but anything. Like I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think we but, can. But I do Beethoven know. And Mozart together. Okay, but it might be very embarrassing later. But what I do know is that. Drag us! <laughs> you drag I dare you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, email us at an email address that we don't have yet. Do we? Insert email address inserted here. There you go. Um, we actually do. We have like two. But um, it was at that point with the composers like them that had big personalities and that drew crowds for their concerts. So they started making money based on bringing people to their concerts rather than just being paid directly by mm-hmm. um, their patron. And so it was still rich people, that went, aristocrats that went and saw them. But they, the draw became just as much their personality or like right. their status as a genius, as an artist, as an exceptional human being. And that was kind of the advent of that idea. And that idea hasn't changed all that much. Um, it's, it's changed in some ways, but meaningfully, there still is this illusion that we're that we as consumers are meant to kind of buy into and kind of can't help it to some extent of believing that there's this individual person, artist or even a group of people that is, you know, sort of responsible for just being inspired in some way that we can, we can never imagine and creating something, creating beautiful music, right? But the reality is that the, the music that we've been enjoying and listening to has been created by committee. It's usually created by a large group of people. And for a long period of modern history, um, the people who perform songs usually didn't write them, right? So this whole idea of a cover must be a... a of covering a song is a pretty recent thing. Um, not having researched all that deeply into it, I'm kind of wondering whether it was the 50s and the 60s and the kind of folk revival and like the kind of rise of singer-songwriters as like really important key kind of musicians in terms of thinking about authenticity. Right? I wonder if that was kind of a period when we started thinking more along those lines, thinking of them as covers, playing other people's music as covers. Um, because, you know, prior to that, like in, in the kind of Tin Pan Alley days, a lot of songs, like people like George Gershwin just wrote a bunch of songs, and then there were literally people called um, pluggers who would sell the sheet music to singers to try to promote their songs. Right. right? That's how music got out there. Right. So it, it was already a, become a factory where they were like, literally, it was like an industry. I mean, that's what we call the music industry, mm-hmm. right? They were per- churning these out these songs and trying to make them as catchy as possible, you know, trying to write about subjects that tapped into people's interests. Like it was all very clearly calculated. And that's yeah. still the, the, the fact or the, the fact of the matter to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do, 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 do. I mean, another more recent example would be like Motown, where a lot of yeah. those artists... The, the, music, the songs were written by people like Barry Gordy or by other writing teams um, and then performed by certain artists who were charismatic, who were great performers. Um, but then even the backing music was performed by studio musicians right. who have very often gone unrecognized. Well, I think, and then all of this is being organized by what, are, what label executives right. have become. And that's, I don't think that was, I don't know when that exactly started, but then there's someone who's orchestrating things in a way that places them at the top of the pyramid you know right it's like you got these players this songwriting team and this performer singing it. this right. is the face that's going to sell the record right but there's a bunch of invisible labor right that's happening leading up to the consumer getting the product mm-hmm. and we're meant to believe that it's like no that's that's a marvin gay song yeah exactly and for marvin gay you know he actually did do a lot of 
writing and like especially when it came around to like uh what's going on which barry mm -hmm. gordy the the label executive resisted he did not want him to put out that album mm -hmm. because it was so like writerly and flowed from song to song and didn't really make sense for the motown model but that all this is to say that like um for a long time it's been somewhat of an illusion this idea of like individual authorship or this kind of like genius status right yeah. and this kind of corporate model of um creating music it didn't take too long for it to for many people say in the u.s or in other places um to feel like it was inauthentic to feel like it was corny to feel like it was played out and so all the, all these different kind of alternative uh, kinds of, kinds of music you know whether it's yeah punk metal um you know techno hip-hop they all kind of emerged and chose a DIY or maybe didn't choose, maybe were forced into kind of a DIY model of having to produce everything themselves. So they're still creating together, but it's kind of like trying to sidestep that corporate model that, you know, that, uh, that comes across as inauthentic, that comes across as false, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, and then there's a lot of, a lot of things that happened within the new wave of British heavy metal of uh, people starting these labels that gave legitimacy to uh, a movement uh, for a music that was a little more extreme than what was going into the pop charts. But by giving them that legitimacy or by having people involved in those invisible ways of labor, it also contradicted things in terms right. of like pushing boundaries creatively and turned things into like, well this we find that this sound is working for this band so right. why don't we try to get this band to emulate that or what if we take this singer from this band and put them in this group now right uh, and it created a hierarchy of like uh, people who were virtuosic at whatever instrument that they were mm -hmm. well and this i mean that's a fact is like even if you create these alternative kind of impulses and subcultures um but don't fundamentally challenge the model of you know capitalism of buying and selling your products at to some extent you're going to have to mimic that model. yeah for sure and that's just that's what we've seen happen is that whether it's hip-hop whether it's punk uh whatever it is we, with even if these move or impulses have origins in a kind of like you know original you know new sound new approach to making music that's indigenous to a certain place like brooklyn um, it doesn't take long for that, for the kind of like trappings of those movements to be um, turned into a product themselves and turned into a corporate product. Because, I mean, the seduction of, of making more money is, you know, it's always going to be compelling uh, to be, yeah, exactly. and especially to musicians, right, who want to make a name for themselves. Well, here's, okay, here's a question I have for you. Do you think that the current music industry um, rewards artists who might be pushing boundaries creatively either within the concept of like creating a, a genre that mixes other things together or just by um you know i guess like out there sort of artistic ability like chasing whatever that muses into mm -hmm. the far realm um do you feel that the music industry rewards people like that enough or uh, do you think it's a system that sort of just recycles stuff I mean, I think it depends on what we're talking about because it's just, the music industry isn't monolithic. Like all like local lab labels and you know truly DIY 
projects and all that kind of stuff are part of the industry mm-hmm. to some extent, but we still have a corporate model that like, for example, like, you know, I've been exposed to a, just a really wide diversity of hip hop or R&B adjacent music that's coming out these days Yeah, that I'm aware of. Um, not all of it is getting to the front page of Spotify. Not right. all of it yeah. is being promoted the same way as Megan Thee Stallion's Hot Girl Summer. Yeah. Right? Which is, for me, like, I didn't like that song very much, even though I like Megan Thee Stallion, <clears throat> just because it seemed so contrived. It was like tapping into this trend of the idea of the hashtag Hot Girl Summer. It was like a song that seemed like it was just made to, like, cash in on that. And it also not, for me, not her best work. But it seems to me like that's the stuff that's always going to be elevated. Right. And then, I mean, and at the same time, there are the indie labels, but there's not, I guess by what I mean is that uh, someone who starts from the ground up uh, independently doing things their own way uh, and pushes creatively into those boundaries, you know, leans into trying to, uh, with the full extent of their capacity or resources, be authentic in mm-hmm. their creative growth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that I see a lot of growth like that mainstream wise, right. you know, right. It's sort of a like flavor of the week type thing, especially mm-hmm. in society now. Like um, I was thinking the other day about someone like uh, Lizzo, mm-hmm. who is in- extremely celebrated. A lot of people recently have told me about going to Lizzo concerts right. and uh, feeling strange about how uh, both white the crowd is mm-hmm. and how like physically fit. Yeah, when a lot of what she's singing about is being a, a black woman and who, who's trying to uh, push forward this idea of body positivity. And, right, uh, right, right. And not that anyone should just not go to Lizzo shows, but it's sure. just it's her audience has been built into something that uh, she's definitely not and that she's definitely not trying to maybe commit her abilities towards. Right. And that her next record, in my mind, would have to be something that pushes back against that. Right, right. And is going to make those people who are at those shows a little bit more uncomfortable. But I guess that's my, that's kind of raises another question for me, which is, okay, ultimately, I don't know if you can make a record that would, that would in its content interrupt that process. Sure. I think it would have to be how you use the money, for example, that you got. Yeah. Yeah, like, like you would have to fundamentally change the consumer relationship, mm-hmm. or the, the consumer, or like, or like what the purpose is of making those profits, right? Because the only way I think to subvert that that kind of thing is to say, okay, all the all the money that I've gotten from all these fit white people that have come to my show, well, I'm going to use it to, you know, support black women financially. Yeah, right. Like that would be the way to subvert it. It seems to me not like I don't think you could make an album. Unless it was like, you know, fuck you, skinny white people. But even then, I think they would be like, woo! You know, like, I don't, I think they would still go to that show. Yeah. You know? A lot of, like, just <laughs> self-loathing. Yeah. Like getting, they would have a great time. I, just, I hear so, so much from, you know, uh, woke white people just, mm-hmm. like, they can't stop ripping on themselves. Or like, sure. God, they're like, oh, white people, Jesus. You know, and sure. it's like. I've Bro, got, like I've got that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, no. Okay. And I'm really woke. <laughs> <laughs> I've okay. Been but awake all day. You okay? In my experience, you hardly talk about that. Sure. You, like, but there's a very real like uh, 
like self-effacing mm-hmm. thing that people do sometimes where they're it seems like what they're asking for you to say is like oh well, you're not one of the bad ones or you know mm-hmm. you're not that bad or whatever it's a it's a super performative or it's like people do feel guilty i think it's performative and they that they want validation from someone else right but we also we've gotten so off topic from cover songs well trying to circle back towards something else yeah okay so what we'll we'll, we'll, as much as i'd like to talk about we'll wrap back around um so i mean yeah so all this is important Mm -hmm. um Let's see. I mean, so one of the th- one of the questions that I had while I was writing about this stuff was, uh, what is? I mean, I don't really know what the financial stuff is involved in, like licensing songs. I don't really know how that legal stuff works, but I imagine that um, artists record things like holiday albums, which are arguably covers, right? Are not their songs. Mm-hmm. Um, or record like a jazz standard or whatever, that part of that is a financial decision or a decision yeah. made by their label. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So it really brings up these questions of like how much personal control does an artist have? So, okay. So if I'm thinking like I'm looking at, you know, a cover version of a song that I'm familiar with that an artist has done, um, there's all kinds of considerations financially and in terms of like the career of that musician that have kind of already taken place by the time I've enjoyed mm-hmm. that, right? Or not. Um, but like, for example, you know, why have, why are there so many Beatles covers, right? Is it, it's not simply because they're good songs or, or maybe the fact of them being good songs and having been so popular, right. Means that it's just like this really, or it's considered like a really rich pool to be drawn out of. Well, I think that's definitely a part of it. And, uh, I mean, the legacy of the Beatles is something way bigger than we could tackle in one post one episode even. Sure. but like i think that there's so much power in just someone else covering a song like that uh i mean but then there's i think there's smaller examples like like going to karaoke uh someone told me recently that they don't like to go to karaoke because people are so bad at singing mm-hmm. but that's the humanity of it i think that's what right. i get out of it is just watching someone like drunkenly stumble through i want to dance with somebody and yeah, it's yeah, yeah so cathartic yeah totally. you know it's yeah. like i mean that's why i got into playing music or doing anything was just thinking like it doesn't matter if i'm good at this right. like it matters if you pour that energy or like that part of yourself into something and anybody people watching that are just watching and applauding because they at the most they know how that feels and they love it right uh i mean in the same way as someone mumbling through like uh born to run sure. is i don't know about cathartic but hilarious yeah totally and everybody knows like that feeling of being like oh mama my engines right like, right like, yeah this is great uh, i don't know that song either but i love the fucking chorus it, the chorus drives me crazy right well and like i'm always thinking about authenticity mm-hmm. as like one of the things that i think most music listeners are looking for whether or not they're kind of aware of it it's like one of the main things that i think attracts people to to one artist or another yeah um and that's definitely true for people covering but i think that's what we see when we go to karaoke right is like this is just true this is true to my experience this is what it sounds like when i sing in the bathroom yeah exactly you know it's like this is the version of that song that i am most familiar with is the Mm -hmm. one where i don't know half the lyrics yeah you know 
Um, and that's fine. Right. But I think the same kind of – or we're making the same kind of consideration when we're seeing – when we're considering, like, whether a cover is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Right? Whether it's successful or not. Well, and then I think that is all relative as well. Like, uh, mm-hmm. we were talking earlier about the Dear Prudence cover right. that Susie and the Banshees do. Right. Um, and that's one that I've been familiar with for a long time. I guess you haven't listened to it yet, huh? I haven't heard it. Yeah. We should play it later. But it's it's definitely – it's a different take on sure. a, a very classic song. Right. But I don't know uh, in my like whatever rebellion phase that was of like saying the Beatles suck and right. I don't want to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I ever would have come back around, um, you know, as complicated as the Beatles are as a band to tout. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I ever would have come back around if it hadn't been for bands like that, like discovering them later on in college and thinking like, yeah, no, this this is a good song. Like right. objectively, the parts of this that you can't take away, whether it's a cover or, you know, like there's a version, obviously there's a personality presented uh, when you're covering something, you're doing your take. Right. But that there are parts of this that I can't objectively deny, you know? Right. Totally. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think that we are considering when we're trying to figure out how good a, a cover is, is like, it's some some balance between uh, how true they're being to the source material, you know, like like how mm-hmm. whether they're capturing the essence of it or not, or whether they're somehow like focusing on the wrong aspect of it or missing the point. Yeah. And then on the other hand, whether they've like picked a song that is consistent with their vision and their voice and their the, the kind of character that we've come to associate with the artist who's covering the song. Yeah. And like whether it, yeah whether it works whether they're able to put a spin on it enough that they take a song from a different context and by bringing it into their context they're actually revealing something new about it well let's let's just list off some of our favorite covers like okay in the original a podcast that we recorded of this yeah uh i think it was around the same time that this was happening but karen o covered oh, yeah. uh bullet with butterfly wings right. from smashing pumpkins for right. an anime i think yeah yeah um and it's good it's like industrial goth and it's really doomy yeah, and gloomy yeah. and like uh obviously her voice and her ideas with like the use of electronics and and space and atmosphere in songs right are all amazing and hearing yeah, that yeah. song in that con and that take so good mm-hmm. what are some of your favorites some of my favorites are like so one of my all-time favorite cover songs is take me to the river the talking heads version um Many people I've spoken to don't know that it's a cover song, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a, you know it's originally by Al Green, originally recorded by Al Green, and you know it, I like it because it's such a for me such a clear example of uh, the Talking Heads paying homage to their influences, which are musicians of color for the most part, mm-hmm. um, but also being by by kind of filtering it through their new wavy. 80s semi-robotic like Devo-esque you know sensibility they're able to make it entirely their own as well um right they kind of like they make it like a march almost but it but it still retains enough of that energy enough of the kind of soulful energy that it, it on the one hand doesn't feel irresponsible doesn't feel like just right. 100% ripping off or appropriation um and yet it remains faithful Sure, and I don't think that any part of a lot of those, I think the important part of 
being able to like one of those songs is the I'm not just ripping you off because we right. see a lot of that uh, in general in the music industry. I think it's been ramping up. I feel like uh, mm-hmm. I feel like I saw headlines with Taylor Swift getting sued for stealing parts of a verse. Uh, I don't care enough to look it up. Right. Let's just assume she's a criminal. I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. I know that she was like, well, I don't know the details on this either, but she was like she copied tra- my hair color. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is a crime. Um, but there's something about like she was like trying to copyright a phrase. Yeah. Uh, what like was shake it? it off? Yeah. Like she tried to copyright. That's, yeah. So she's a fucking just, fascist. <laughs> it's so dumb. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, you mine. You don't. These you don't get to. Words. Yeah, if you're gonna do that, then you don't get to turn around and try it. Yeah. Try the other way. Shake it off, Taylor. Shake it off. Um, um, but what, how do you feel about like MIA uh, sampling a song like "Straight to Hell" from the Clash for uh, mm. when Paper Planes was a hit? I right. Know, it feels like 20 years ago now. That's but, right. But like, I remember listening to that on the radio and thinking like, "Oh hell yeah, the, mm-hmm. the Clash is right. going on." That's really weird that this radio station is playing the Clash. Or that it, but then it was like at Every party you were at, yeah, 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 every bar was playing Paper Planes, right? And uh, all I was thinking was like, this used to be a Clash song, right? This very beginning, and it's like that, especially because the beginning uses the sample in such a way that it, it it's almost indistinguishable it's not changed. at that very yeah. start, you know? Right? It's like dun dun dun, like you're like, oh shit, yeah, yeah, this is great. But it also makes so much sense that the Clash has a song. That uh, it's like this sort of circuitous way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of like culture revolving, like English rebellious music culture in this like revolving circle, right? Where it somehow came back around to MIA being able to use something from the Clash that they took right. from like the slums of London uh, at the time in the eighties of all of these Eastern cultures, right? Like, utilizing those beats and like utilizing those sounds in a way and trying to re-engage with them on like electric guitars and then uh capacity as like a punk band right and another example along those lines is um the album that angelique kijo put out a couple years ago she's an artist from do 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 she's Viennese. so this is the thing i, I really did not want to say that she was an african artist because that's not yeah. a country sure. um but that's what i was gonna have to say if i didn't look it up just now so sorry to everybody I don't know all the countries in Africa. I think we got there. Okay. Yeah. And anyway, she put out an album, um, I believe called Remain in Light, which was a, just a series of Talking Heads covers. And, yeah. her, and her kind of reasoning was, look, okay, I mean, a lot of these influences that they pulled were from the continent of Africa and, mm-hmm. and various countries there. And by taking them back, she really injects them like with just like a heavy dose of African pop. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's incredible. It's really, it's really so good. good. Yeah. But it, it, it's that same kind of process. But the other example that came up when you were saying that a second ago was uh, Ice Ice Baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the, like the first few seconds being indistinguishable from uh, under pressure. Yeah. You know, that, and that's a, I think that's an example that people kind of held up as a really egregious mm-hmm. one where it's like, you know, why, like we don't like this song. Uh, but the the source material is so good, yeah. And it really it it, it reminds you of a better song, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know. So it's like there's never going to be favorable for Ice Ice Baby. Um, I don't know. Do you disagree? Do you love Ice Ice, Ice Baby? 
No, I mean, I, <laughs> but I, I heard the Queen song first. Yeah, so right. So it's not like, I, I think that maybe that's another part of it. It's just what, which one do you hear first? Right. You know, there are plenty of people who have listened to that MIA song who've never heard The Clash. Right. Because, and I do think that the Smash Mouth version of Believer mm-hmm. is better than the Turtles version. That's weird, but. Is it? I don't know. I mean, is it really objectively better? Well, but that's the thing. I saw it. I heard it first when I saw you saw Shrek. Shrek. Yeah, and sorry, that version goes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I just but, like it better. <laughs> but like, I I also grew up listening to groups like the Turtles. Like yeah. those are my mom's one of my mom's favorite bands. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up listening to that. Right. And then right, hearing, right. I think at that point uh, in my life, I was not going to be a fan of. Smash Mouth anymore. I think I had I had two CDs, but sure, I was like, sure. no, this part of my life is done. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just an it's an age thing. It's like on the other side of it. Yeah. Um, do you want to? Um, I think this would be a good time to talk about changes. Good call. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, so part of what I want to talk about is a song called Changes that was released in 1972 by the band Black Sabbath, and at this point in their career, they were the heavy band in rock and roll you know like metal was just now becoming a concept that people were flirting with in terms of like what like most things had just been rock and roll up to that point uh and they'd had uh plenty of time to put out three records that were sort of similar right there's self-titled there's uh paranoid and master of reality and then volume four they're just kind of sharpening their sharpening their their approach yeah yeah at least i think that's the order probably wrong um, but then Changes comes out on Volume 4, which is probably their weirdest album in terms of use of studio, um, which is something they hadn't really done as much of before. Mm-hmm. Um, so they utilize like uh, a Mellotron on one song. This song in particular is a ballad, and the main riff is played on piano, right? Um, which is a huge departure for that band in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, on an album that was a huge departure for their sound in general. Um, and a lot of that is attributed to the amount of cocaine or drug use that they had, um, which is legendary in its like retelling. Um, right. But that's a big thing with Ozzy anyway. Sure. Uh, so Changes starts out with this pretty simple piano chord change and then a little lead up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lyrics are written by bill ward um god i hope that's right i said it and now i feel like it's not i know that's how i felt about whatever i said that is probably wrong i forget about let me let me just fact check this shit either way the lyrics were by geezer butler thank god all right they were inspired by bill ward's breakup with his first wife there you go there you go that's what it was there it is um but it's this heartbreaking story about going through changes with someone that you love and it's sung by ozzy osbourne and it's like pretty impassioned Mm -hmm. to this point his vocals had been been like ethereal uh most of the themes were fantasy or science fiction or horror based Mm -hmm. that was all about like sort of otherworldly ideas uh, or like living as uh, an outsider in a world of insiders. He's writing war machines. Yeah. And like 
that so this song is a love song right metalhead the diehard ones that were just beginning to, to be a thing were like what the fuck no right, way right, right um but so this this song from that point in time as a departure from this band as just a, just hard rock into being one of the pop powerhouses of the 80s as far as ozzy osbourne is concerned maybe not uh Black Sabbath as much mm-hmm. uh, it goes on to be covered by a number of heavy bands uh, that do heavy versions that do tribute versions that do an authentic take on it you know right um, until 2003 Kelly Osbourne Ozzy's daughter to jumpstart her pop career as a singer she performs changes with her dad on top of the pops which is a, a British show Kind of like MTV, mm-hmm. uh, but they do a live version, and it's the most uncomfortable thing to watch. Um, Kelly is standing, or maybe she's laying on a beanbag when it starts. No, oh, I hate that. And Ozzy's like on a throne chair, mm. and they're singing the song about going through changes, but it somehow takes on a father-daughter mm. puberty type no. thing of like him giving her permission to go, go out and be uh, a sexual woman. Could they not? And it's so uncomfortable. Um, and it's just so strange that song written about Bill Ward's breakup with his first wife turns into a, a puberty like uh, dad says I can go be a woman now song just because the the parts changed just because right. the, the actors the performers changed around the context right. changed around um, so later it's performed by Charles Bradley um, who does Probably my favorite rendition of the song, in right. all honesty. Right. Um, and he's a soul singer, uh, a very, very famous soul singer. And there's a video you can find where he's performing live in a, a radio station. I think it's in Canada somewhere. And he's talking about how he had never heard of Black Sabbath. He'd never heard of the Zazi guy before. But one of his one of his guys showed him the song, and he was like, "Oh man, yeah, this is the one." Uh, and his immediate connection to it was going through. Uh, watching his mom battle cancer and watching her die uh, and going through this, you know, this is a, a change for both of us. We're both changing into this, into these new worlds of these different versions of ourselves where I'm going to be here without you and you're going to be gone. Right. Uh, and that's such a weird and deep change from, yeah. from especially from the first divorce part or then from the, the father-daughter puberty part to being about uh, son's relationship with his mom who's going to die right uh, and his version is just so much more it's like powerful mm-hmm. like emotionally it just contains so much intensity uh, yeah and then that Charles Bradley version of changes gets picked up to become the theme song on the Netflix animated series Big Mouth right which is about God, kids this. going through puberty so interesting yeah. It's just so weird how it all it gravitates around so much. It changes hands so much, and the changing hands changes the story and changes the meaning of the song in these really seemingly minuscule ways. But then when it's presented in that context, like watching, I don't know, I haven't tried to watch that show Big Mouth because I don't think I could watch the <laughs> song and not just think about uh, that him talking about his mom dying. Like you can honestly, skip, you can skip the intro. I guess, well, okay. <laughs> if you really let's, wanted to watch let's it. Let's save that for the advice podcast. All right, all right, all right. But it's just, it's so interesting to me how the one song uh, written at a point in time, you know, 40 years later, can mean something completely different. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's pr- 
It, maybe it's not completely different. It's about as far as you can go without being completely different, but maybe part of the strength of that, I mean, I think part of the strength of that song, why it's endured so much is it's the openness of the lyrics. I mean, there's nothing that's going to be as true for as long as change. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's no more universal, enduring concept, right? Um, I think it's really fascinating the way that it's come back around to puberty again. But to some extent, that's, like, the strength of the song, right? It's, like, it can be, like, some interpretations are going to be more powerful than others because they resonate with us more, because they speak more to our sense of what is true about that artist. Right, and the things that we we want to hear in the song. Right, yeah, like yeah. What, or what we don't want to hear about yeah, it, which like, is... I don't want to hear the puberty part. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't... <laughs> and it's because, I, I mean, I'm also not interested in watching a show about, like, animated kids going through puberty. Right, I think that's nasty and gross, and I don't like it, but I will say that I would prefer... I, I theoretically prefer the big mouth reinterpretation as puberty because I think at that point they're mm-hmm. conscious that it's humor. Yeah. And I think not having actually watched the video of Kelly and Ozzy performing the song, I think it's played pretty straight. It is played. Yeah. No, so, absolutely. So that's played very straight. That sucks ass. I'll tell you one thing about that. That's strange. Yeah. That there is a, a listing of the tracks for her album that's changes. Okay. And then changes uh, parentheses Felix da Housecat remix. I hate that too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know who that is? So disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Oh I don't know what that is. It's not even Felix the cat with a bag of tricks. It doesn't seem good. No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's it can be harder to cover to do kind of convincing covers of songs like Changes. Absolutely, yeah. Or songs like, um, you know, Blowing in the Wind mm-hmm. by Bob Dylan or songs like uh, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. I think it's harder to pull those off because for me, covers work best when there's an element of humor yeah, or like being conscious that you're playing with someone else's work and hopefully your audience is in on the joke. But that's not the case in, in like Jack Johnson's cover of John Lennon's Imagine. That's played incredibly straight. Yeah. Not for laughs. Uh, I'm sorry, but I think that song just sucks to begin with. I think Imagine is a shitty song. Uh, like, Imagine's no borders. Imagine there's no da 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 Like, I mean, no borders is g- great. Good idea. But... Like, it's just a very wishy-washy song that doesn't say a lot. Sure. And is understood to be very profound. But in the context of when that song was created and when it was put into the world, do you think that there was power in that then? I think so, but I think it was misdirected even then. I think that our reminiscence of the 60s, at least mine, is that it was wishy-washy. Right. But that's because I grew up in a different time and I'm seeing what's happening today looking back at that thinking cool everybody had flowers in their hair like you got nothing done right well but, but compare imagine which i think might have come out in like the 70s but yeah. like the early 70s but compare that to um a change is going to come by sam cook for sure. me way better sure says a lot more yeah spe- like is specific to his experience he's saying like look there's a there's a first that was taken out because it was too controversial during his mm-hmm. lifetime where he talks about trying to go to a movie theater and not being allowed to. 
Yeah. Um, but it's there's an element of him testifying to how painful it is to be alive in a world, you know, defined by inequity, and then him just just to declare a change is going to come. Yeah. Sorry, that's always going to be better and stronger to me than imagine some bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I have I like I like John Lennon a lot. I don't think that's a good song of his. Um, but one of my favorite covers of all time is a, a cover that Baby Huey does of A Change Is Gonna Come right. that he did in the 70s. So, you know, Sam Cooke's version was from the very early 60s when the civil rights movement was still in full swing and there was a real sense of hope that civil rights was gonna do what it claimed to be able to do, which was gonna be like to make a society equal, right? Yeah. By the 70s, it became pretty clear that was not gonna happen. A lot of leaders had been assassinated, a lot of movements had been sort of crushed in various ways, and Baby Huey's version is psychedelic, is like rough around the edges. He has screams in it, and there's and he keeps saying, there's a, there's a part that's spoken in between where he talks about his kind of like youth coming up and doing drugs, and uh, the rest of the, like a lot of his songs that are best known are like called like Hard Times, that are about like hard times in this crazy town, mm-hmm. like then there's no love to be found. Like so, his version yeah. of his version of the song speaks to, like when he says a change is gonna come, you're not sure if he believes it. And there's something so powerful about that, about because he's commenting on the original source material, and saying how disappointed he is in the events of a decade, and speaking to his experience. Yeah, you know. So to to Absolutely. me, that's some of the strongest. That's the, the, the strongest way to approach covering a song is like being aware. I mean, especially if it's like from like a well, whatever t- period of the past it's in, whether it's like a week, or a year, or fifty years old, the song, you know, to be aware that you're commenting on that period of time, or you're commenting on what's changed or what hasn't changed, uh, or in what ways, or what you bring to it, um, and like not being afraid to change it because yeah. Jack Johnson. I'm sorry to go back to this. Jack Johnson playing straight. John Lennon, imagine sucks you know what i mean yeah it's a bad it's a bad time it's not good bad time for everyone we don't like it can i suggest something yes i think this needs to become a a two-part episode at least do you think so oh i've got are you kidding me i've got one two three four five at least five more pages polio work for the microphones too that was one page of paper that max was shaking around at folks ladies and gentlemen audience that was 20 pages (laughs) 20 pages yeah i think maybe we should just do a part two next time that uh we can get you i can get down to santa cruz you can come up here and if we made any mistakes at any point in this recording don't tell us there were a lot of mistakes (laughs) Um, if we got anything wrong uh just keep that to yourself (laughs) because we don't want to hear about it yeah stick around for part two uh we're we're obviously going to get Way more into this. Yeah, and we're going to disagree a lot more. We're going to start disagreeing just for the sake of disagreeing with one another. I can't wait. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks. This is how, this you, is, this is how, this is how I hear it. Do you want to, you say it. <laughs> okay. Wait, what, what, what did I say? One, two, three. This is how I hear I it. Hear. Thank you how for listening. I, oh. <laughs> yeah.